Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Hey guys, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen. And we are just going to jump right in. Right in. Because this case is crazy. It's multifaceted. It's very complex. And I think you guys are going to love it. We have two open-ended homicides and it's one part mystery one part shakespearean tragedy and it will make you question the concept of our justice system revenge slangs and vigilante justice where is this crime set well right in los angeles where we are recording from this first kind of piece of this crime occurred april 30th 1983 i was not born yet we're going back billy was an adult i (laughs) was i was 11 years old Mm. I was minus four. I was a very skinny kid into baseball. This is before I really discovered true uh, music and probably before I discovered Bowie. So we had two years until I became a Bowie freak and then a goth and then all that. (laughs) This is me just really really into baseball right now. (laughs) That's really And now Billy goes to goth brunches. future of at-home hair color is here with Madison Reed. You can get amazing salon quality hair color delivered to your door for less than 25 buckaroos. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com and they want to offer our first three listeners 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with promo code first degree. Anyways, so 5.22 a.m., Beverly Hills paramedics were called to room L28 at the Beverly Crest Hotel. So the paramedics found a naked woman lying lifeless on a mattress that had either accidentally slid onto or had been pulled down onto the floor. The woman had clearly been beaten and her face was swollen, bloody, and her front teeth were chipped. And there was, weirdly, a man sitting on her chest who seemed really frenzied and he was using very extreme pressure like he was trying to resuscitate her. But it seemed exaggerated. So this is so when the paramedics came into the room, he was sitting on her chest. Yes, and it was kind pushing of pushing dis- on her. It was kind of a display of help. Oh my gosh, resuscitate her! This is what I'm trying to do. Yeah, that was kind of how it was yeah. described in the research. That's so weird. Okay. And one of the paramedics said that he was doing really frantic, deep compressions, using his whole upper body, rocking back and forth much too deeply, 
And apparently you find that a lot of people who are in a panic state do this and they don't know what they're doing and they're probably causing more harm than good. Right. So that's something to keep in mind. So the woman didn't have a pulse at the scene and paramedics couldn't start her heart at the scene. So she was rushed to UCLA Medical Center, but she was pronounced dead at 6.57 a.m. They were unable to revive her. So who was this woman that was laying swollen, bloody face, teeth chipped and that ended up passing away that morning. It was 33-year-old businesswoman Joan McShane Mills, which is a very pretty name. So before we really get into Joan, we're going to tell you how we heard about this case and, of course, who our first-degree connection to this story is. And our guest is someone who was one of the victim's best friends, and Joan was actually a bridesmaid in her wedding, and her name is Barbara Matthews. And an added bonus... So including her perspective today is that she's also an attorney, so she'll be able to offer some unique insight in that way, too. But not only that, there's more. She's also my mom. Hi, Mom. Hello, darling. <laughs> I'm really good. So tell us a little bit about how you met Joan. Uh, well, Joan, I met Joan through a friend of a friend. And I think at the time, my friend was working in a business agency for women. I can't remember. But I remember the first time I met her, she was an outstanding person. Whenever you met her, she completely filled up the room. So it was like being in awe of a person for the first time you met them, which was pretty fantastic. Uh, she drove a... A white Corvette with red leather interior. Oh, cool. Goals. It was like, I don't know, a 1960-something. People used to stop on the street when she was driving it. And she was just larger than life. So, you know, that, that, the car was just part of her whole Persona, mystique. Yeah. yeah. What about the news of hearing what happened, do you remember? We weren't told the truth about the circumstances of her death when she first died. We were all in such horrible shock. So she was down in Los Angeles. She was here for a uh, publicity promotional on her book. We were told that she died an accidental death from a cocaine overdose. Oh, and who told you that? Our friends. Because we all had to, all of a sudden, we had to like go to this funeral. And it was like, Joan's dead. We have to go to a funeral. And it's like, what? You know, are you, are you kidding? And basically they said that she had been partying with somebody and had died of a cocaine overdose, which was kind of believable. Joan was a bridesmaid in my wedding. And I was thinking about that this morning because she was the kind of person that she'd walk into a room and men would fall over for this woman. I can't tell you. One time she had these, she had these, Leather pants. She had these taupe leather pants and matching boots. So that you'd see her in these, and it just looked like she had like this one piece leather thing on <laughs> boots and pants and everything, and the men would just go crazy. So in this wedding, the wedding was the, the bridesmaids were all wearing this, these, this Victorian garb, which was like so unlike her. <laughs> That's what you chose for your bridesmaids on yes. your wedding day? Yes. So um, they were Victorian long, garb. Yeah, there was long Victorian skirts and then uh, flowers in the hair and everything like that. And then she, you know, just waltzed down all pure in this outfit. And that was, like, really not what she was at all. She was not at all a Victorian woman. She was more like leather pants. 
there's an LA Times article about her, and it said that she was an unusually active businesswoman, which I don't understand what that means, but well, okay. I included that because I thought that was hysterical, meaning really ambitious. And they were pointing that out as if it was super uncommon, which I don't know in the 80s if it was for it to be. I was just into baseball woman. then. I don't know what. I, I can't talk He's like, about women were still in the kitchen. I looked at, I I looked no at Billy idea. to weigh in on that, and he was like, I, I don't know, I was 11. I, I was 11. I had no idea. I know I'm not sure women had rights in 1983. Who knows? They're probably just, you know, cook and clean, don't do anything. Yeah, well, she apparently wasn't. I'm, in the book, like you said, it was called Equal to the Task, and it was mm-hmm. all about female executives. Which is dope, and maybe I need to read it. Um, but media reports revealed that Joan lived a double life. She didn't want the family to know her wild side, which was doing a lot of cocaine, partying, and going off with strange men. And she concealed this wild lifestyle from her relatives for most of her life. She's got this two, like... A double life situation. juxtapositioning characteristics. So, like, on the outside to her family, she just seems this, like, this... Pristine. Good, yeah, put-together Catholic girl, and then... executive, but she's Behind really, closed doors, she's partying her butt off. That's right. What about her cocaine use? Did you see it? How often? The frequency? Tell me what you knew about it. She liked it. You know, she didn't have any kids. Yeah. I mean, people who do it seem to like it. She recreationally did cocaine, so that it was believable that she could have overdosed if she had bad cocaine or something it was believable at the time so she's in la that night on business and she's out with her friend anita they go to dinner and drinks at the hard rock cafe now the hard rock cafe you might think of it now as a little bit of a a family restaurant but (laughs) is it yeah oh i'm thinking about the hard rock hotel no, the it's Hard the Rock same Cafe. Brand. No, no, the it's Hard the Rock same brand. The Hard Rock Cafe is a place you take the kids. It's always in. in it's in Times Square. It's in yeah. right at Hollywood and Highland. But in 1983, the Hard Rock Cafe was kind of hip. It was the first one that they built out here after London. So it was a cool place to be. Spielberg was involved in it. It was. It was, it was a hip place. So they go for dinner or drinks at the Hard Rock Cafe, and they sat at the table of this tall, blonde, handsome stranger by the name of Jeffrey Parker. And this guy was like, uh, he knew some people at the table. It's not like he was a stranger off of the street. So he had been somehow socially connected to some of these people that she was with. You know, so he was a cocaine dealer at this Hard Rock Cafe or wherever they were. So she didn't go off with this random cocaine dealer. She went off with the cocaine dealer that everybody knew who happened to be at the party. So funny because I never knew the guy's name was Jeffrey Parker. I never even thought about what his name was ever. I've never heard his name. And uh, so it's making him human somehow because he has a name now, which is remarkable to me because I never thought of him as a human being because he murdered my friend for no reason. Other than he must have had a, a little problem. He couldn't control himself. And Parker told the women that there was a club next door. It was a cool place to go dancing. And this was actually at the Beverly Center. Uh, that's where they... Oh, really? That's, oh, that's really? where it used to be, yeah. Uh, and then the they Hard closed Rock? it. Yeah, they closed it down. Then they moved it to Hollywood and Highland. Huh. So it began a long night of drinking and drugs and partying. Anita told police that they had 10 drinks each. Jeffrey also gave them a small vial of cocaine, which is also what you did back then. It was so powerful, Anita said, that it fogged her memory for part of the evening. 
Now, the three of them, after this club, they went to an after party at Jeffrey's friend's apartment in Beverly Hills. Anita stayed at the apartment, but Jeffrey and Joan went back to the hotel, which is the Beverly Crest Hotel. And the Beverly Crest Hotel was not a super nice hotel. It I mean, wasn't. it was Beverly Hills, but I don't think it was a super nice hotel. Crest. It's Beverly not open Crusty. anymore. I looked to figure out yes. which hotel it was now. And is it the Beverly Wilshire now? No, I don't think so. So the police and paramedics were alerted to the scene the next morning after that guest reported the screaming and banging coming from Joan's room. And whoever the witness was heard a man saying, come on, baby, come on, baby, as if to start breathing again. Oh, what I'm thinking. I thought it was it more of a sexual else. thing. Really? It could be either. It could be sexual. It could be. Yeah. It could I feel be like saying co- forceful situation. Resuscitating somebody that you don't know saying, come on, baby, seems so almost intimate, you know? Can remember, it was 1983. Oh, everybody's calling And everybody I was just baby. into baseball. I don't really remember. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it very well might have been, you know, come on. Come on. But it could have been pressure. It could have been pressure, uh, whether it be sexual or some sort of other peer pressure situation. So when the police arrived, Jeffrey Parker's initial claim was that Joan had collapsed after a night of partying, alcohol, drugs, and sex. And so he attempted to start her heart again by administering CPR. But when the police arrived at the hotel, a responding officer mentioned that there was something glaring about Jeffrey's story that just like wasn't exactly adding up. Her face was battered and bloodied, and her teeth were broken. And how could chest compressions cause such damage to her face? You know, you can look at somebody's body and say that person was beaten to death. It didn't happen by accident. She didn't fall out the window of the hotel. Did you read any of the details of her death? Yes, I. you know, I did, and it was very disturbing, actually, because she was such a beautiful person. And when you think of someone like that being beaten to death, it's just it's unbelievable, actually. You don't want to really identify with it too much or put yourself in, the, um, in their position, but I know people do that all the time. And Parker's explanation for her injuries was that he was trying to perform CPR. You are a lawyer, but you're not a, a medical professional, but judging from all of the descriptions of her injuries does that sound like he was telling the truth or are you pretty confident that he beat her i'm pretty sure he beat her in the face that her teeth were all broken and everything i'm pretty sure that happened it was i couldn't we were like she was like 28 years old or something or 30 it was you know we were young it was almost impossible to accept yeah talk about what kind of grief were you experiencing when you heard what happened well, when they first told us that it that it had been a drug overdose, it was unbelievable and, unaccept- and unacceptable, but we kind of struggled with that. And then I think like three weeks later, we found out that she had been beaten to death. And that was really hard. It was like almost having to grieve all over again because it was, you know, a total violation for someone to be killed. So he gave conflicting statements about what had transpired. First, he claimed that the two had sex. And then in a different account, he said that they didn't have sex. And then she collapsed soon after they arrived in the room. So his stories were going all over the place. He didn't even really know what he was saying. So the police were not convinced of Jeff's story. And he was obviously arrested on suspicion of Jones murder. So now we know Jeffrey's name. But who is this guy really? And what happens next? 
He was a 33-year-old unemployed actor. Pause for Jack's reaction. (laughs) (laughs) A.K.A. half the guys that I've dated in L.A. (laughs) Yeah. Half of them are actors, and half of them used to be actors and are now doing things they hate to do. I just love unemployed actor. Yeah. it's Like, Like you wish that was your job, but it's not. It's not. Because you're really unemployed. So, but what did he really do? He was a cocaine dealer. Yep. Is what he really did. There so he was is. an active cocaine dealer. So he's and- an unemployed actor. He was an employed cocaine dealer. <laughs> but I like how you have down there active cocaine dealer. Active cocaine dealer. That's what he put on his uh, tax return. So You can put that on your tax return that you're a drug dealer? I think that might have been a joke. You know what took down Al Capone? Oh, Al Capone. The IRS took down Al Capone because they don't really care what you do. You just pay your taxes. <laughs> and he didn't. Yes. The IRS will come for you. Yes. Pay your taxes on the cocaine. But I'm pretty sure on his IRS films forms, if he did film them out, he would have not have put mobster on the forms. Exactly. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop, or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways, and with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences, and before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 
10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Let's get back to Jeffrey Parker. Let's. He attended USC. He majored in poli-sci. And he was a frat dude, belonged to a frat fraternity, and he was a cheerleader, which is suspect off the top. I mean, this guy is all over the place. But what's interesting is that he went to USC for six years, but only accumulated <laughs> two years worth of an education. So he's like a super, super, super senior. Super senior and poser because he never got a degree. Yeah. What a waste of private school money. Who is who's paying for this private school? He's actually a super junior but yeah <laughs> super junior and you know those like a super need... sophomore right meanwhile an autopsy is being conducted the next day which revealed the extent of the beating that joan received that night her right wrist left arm right side chest eyes and inner lips were bruised her eyes were swollen shut and she had seven broken teeth 12 of her ribs were broken her lungs were collapsed, and her liver and other internal organs were lacerated. This was no injury based on someone trying to revive you. Tests of her blood revealed cocaine and alcohol, but the cause of death was officially listed as blunt force injuries to her chest and abdomen. But interestingly, the report concluded with this caveat, stating that her death, quote, could have been caused by poorly administered CPR. So I think what the coroner was doing there was saying, I can't dispute that given what I have right now. At that point, they couldn't say conclusively that that was right. And right. And the internal stuff, whether he was, you know, she was a slight woman. She had a lot of broken ribs. But what about the face stuff? And the face stuff, he tried to explain away by saying that he tried to slap her back into consciousness. With That's... seven broken teeth, <laughs> eyes swollen shut. Bloodied face. That is a hard That's slap. Slapping her. So, so the Beverly Hills Police Department, they arrest Jeffrey Parker for murder. The autopsy findings seem to have planted a seed of doubt about his guilt, though, at least for the time being. And the district attorney's office says, quote, some of the circumstances and the victim's death appear strange, but there is not enough evidence at this time to, di to disprove the suspect's story. That's what the L.A. County district attorney's office said. Can you believe that with all uh, with everything that that autopsy said, seven broken teeth, all those broken bones, the broken ribs, all that those injuries. And they said, you know what? We're going to let you go. He was in custody for three days and they let him out. I mean, it's it's he was literally on her chest as the police walked or the paramedics walked in. Right. And That's I think, crazy. again, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, the bureaucracy or the climate within the district attorney's office can really play a, a role in some of these decisions in terms of indictments. At this point, perhaps it was his word as far as what had transpired and maybe one paramedic or officer on the scene had said, 
oh, it seemed genuine. He seemed very upset. I mean, that they could have just been waiting for the evidence. And this was their way of neutralizing the media firestorm, just saying we don't have enough evidence at this time. So Jeffrey is arrested. Then he's released. Because at this point, they didn't have enough to charge him with Jones' murder. All they had was the autopsy that indicated that it was possible that her injuries could have been caused by this misapplied CPR, this like dangerously aggressive CPR. But the judge soon learned that Jeffrey Parker was on probation, and he had a prior incident involving violence against another woman. So they, they don't have enough to charge him for Jones' murder. They are able to arrest him and hold him on these drug charges and for the, that parole violation. The family arranges for a private autopsy to be performed. And they put uh, immense pressure on the Beverly Hills PD to really just to get to the bottom of the murder. But then things really start getting strange around this time. In the meantime, when we talked a little bit about who Joan McShane Mills was, we talked about this conservative family, but we didn't mention necessarily that she was engaged, which is a large part of anyone's life. And also her that was that her family did not know she was engaged as well. Her family didn't even know she was living with this guy some of her family members believe that she was still living with her ex-husband. So there's a lot of things that get convoluted here because double lives can do that. So the details surrounding their relationship are very strange. In an article that the San Francisco Chronicle ran, they said during the four years that he and Joan McShane Mills lived together in his Twin Peaks home, they permitted no visitors and did not even have a telephone. And Joan had to call her friends and family from pay phones. Now, that's really that weird. That is so, like, why? In 1983, remember, I was just into baseball. But in 1983, <laughs> that's the only way that you would ever be able to talk to people is yeah. through the phone. So but, it's obvious that her family knew nothing. I mean, this is this is a behavior of somebody, and you, we've seen this a lot in certain cases. We, we saw this actually in the Allenstown 4 case where this guy was kind of alienating her for, a fa- for her, her family and saying, you're not going to talk to your family. You're going to stay here. Nobody's allowed in here to see. So who knows what had they had going on in that place? Yeah. But also, you're not allowed to reach out. And she had to go outside in order to talk to people. That's like such a controlling, weird to thing to happen. Just in case of emergencies, doesn't seem, doesn't seem practical to me. No. No. Do you know anything about her, the fiance that she was with? I met Richard Dale... Wilson a couple of times, a few times, but I kind of saw her more of like with the girls, you know, and then she'd be out with Richard at night or she, with, when Richard got off of work or whatever. The press reports talk about that no one was allowed in their house. Were you ever in their house? No, I was not ever in their house. And did you know that she didn't have a phone? And when she called you, did she have to use an outside line pay phone? You know, that it just none of that stuff ever occurred to me. It never even occurred to me that I was never going to her house. Isn't that funny? Well, the press reports say that he was this kind of very paranoid person who was obsessed with privacy and that they didn't have a phone and that no one was allowed at their house. And lo and behold, you had not been there. Uh, You know, he was a very well-connected guy. He had a lot of money. And he had some very influ. This is what I know secondhand about him. He had a lot of influential clients in San Francisco, a lot of people with money. And he did not like the idea that some low-life guy killed his girlfriend. He had joined this accounting firm in San Francisco. He met his future business partner, and they had a really successful accounting firm. And like my mom said, really affluent, influential, powerful clients. 
there is wild speculation about these clients. Could they be mob? Could they be this? Mm -hmm. Could they be that? Mm -hmm. I'm not saying they are. There are wild rumors about it. That's not the only weird thing about them. When Dale Wilson was interviewed about his fiance, Joan McShane Mills, he said things like, in their relationship, quote unquote, (laughs) she was that of a geisha. Every morning, Joan would serve him breakfast in bed. She would rush home again in the evening to serve him dinner. Quote unquote, she was like a puppy dog. It's so conflicting to how she is described as this independent businesswoman that has her shit together. And then when it comes to him, she's, you know, at his beck and call, cannot make phone calls. Like, that is a very weird juxtaposition. Well, what's so odd is that she seems to be so empowered in her professional life, kind of being a pioneer of female executives and things like that. But then she's hiding her real self from her family. And she's this totally submissive person in this in this relationship Mm -hmm. and we bring this stuff up because especially when you hear about true crime cases and they're kind of painting a picture of a victim there's usually one narrative the the big one that all the media outlets are going by but in this case i've never seen three different personas punctuated so boldly in all of these different reportings and that's that's what we learned about her from all these different sources so no it sounds like you're talking about two completely different people three really obviously this like creates this gigantic media firestorm it's kind of everything that the media latches on to um it's a murder of a san francisco socialite it's total media gold newspapers were running all these crazy stories with insane titles one of them was the illusion of wealth they were written and they declared joan to be a master of illusion who acted like she was on the top of the world so they're almost painting her in this vicious not vicious light but it's, it's not positive it's not positive it's at all indulgent it's pretentious. It's it's victim blaming almost. It's victim blaming a hundred percent, but it's subtle. It's like those subtle jobs. Yeah, it's like an underhanded say to you. Right. Okay. Back to Richard Dale Wilson. Based on my research, it was clear that Joan loved this guy, but her family didn't. They hated him they hated him even more after he had taken control of Joan's body after her death. And for some reason he really wanted Joan to be cremated immediately. But the family really wanted to have the second autopsy done because they were horrified that the killer of their daughter had walked Mm -hmm. and the coroner in Los Angeles County had indulged this uh, account that it could have been CPR. So they were freaking out. Rightfully so. Also, it's just, I, I still think it's so sketchy that he wanted her body to be immediately cremated. I feel like that's always a telltale sign of you're trying to hide something in the body. But what's interesting is that Richard Dale Wilson couldn't have done it. So what is he trying to hide? That's what I'm saying. That there's so many sketchy things revolving around him, and he didn't even have anything to do with her murder whatsoever. But you would think he did by the way he's acting and of all of the decisions that he's making right after. It's odd. You heard, though, through the grapevine that Richard Dale Wilson was not handling it well. What we have read is that he was very against a second autopsy being performed and that he was fighting with the McShane Mills family over her remains and what to do. And he wanted to have her cremated immediately. They wanted a second autopsy. And we can't figure out why Richard Dale Wilson would be so adamantly against that. Can you speculate? Maybe it was the drugs. 
Do you think the privacy component where that he was obsessed with privacy, where he just didn't want anything exploited? I'm just musing because none of us will ever know. Maybe she wanted to be cremated and he knew that. So maybe it was really more about the body. I didn't think about that. Maybe she wanted to be cremated. But that's like an interesting conversation to be having when you're like 30. What do you think, Billy? I don't know. Remember, I was just 11 at that time. (laughs) So like we said, the remains were released to Richard Dale Wilson, although we're not really sure how since the pair weren't married. And can you legally, like, can a fiancé legally take the remains of somebody? They're not supposed to, but I think the 80s was kind of like the Wild West. I mean, if he's convincing enough. and I mean, certainly the 80s wasn't a time when, uh, you know, whether they were saying that they, oh, no, this is my wife. He might have lied. He very well might have said that. They're not checking records or anything. He's wearing really big shoulder pads and a nice pair of sunglasses. He can get anything he wants. Anything. He had a little twinkle in his eye. (laughs) And this is when... The really strange part of this story. If, if it already doesn't sound strange, it gets so much crazier and weirder. But I just have like a, a, a well, I don't know if either of you know this, like a legal question of, so if you're married to somebody, does it go to the spouse before the family? It should go to the spouse before the family, but not married. But, but if, if you're that's a little weird, engaged? but she's an adult and if, if he's, if he's Johnny on the spot. He didn't want any more publicity on the fact that his fiance was alone with this other man in a hotel room. Like an embarrassment kind of thing. Maybe he didn't want people to know that she was doing tons of cocaine. Maybe he was just wanting to protect her dignity and not have her death be exploited. But he also had a $250,000 life insurance policy out on her, which he was the beneficiary of. And honestly, when you hear about life insurance policies in true crime cases... He did not do it, so it's fascinating yeah. that he is so protective over probably this money that he's going to get, which which could also be the reason why. I mean, if there's some implication in receiving the money yeah. based on manner of death, that could be if an they want, yeah, Potentially, if there was a caveat in the life insurance policy, potentially about drug use or mm. something criminal, he doesn't get the money or he has to wait for the money. He seems like a guy that wants to do things by himself. He's doing this his own way. And we're going to see that throughout this story is that this guy just wants to handle things by himself. Yeah. So Joan's family gets the body back, but Richard Dale Wilson is making a ton of threats on them. And he's saying essentially that he's not going to rest until he had the body back. So the night of Joan's wake, they were so paranoid at Richard Dale Wilson's power and fervor to get this body that they hired literal bodyguards to watch and mind Jones remains to make sure they didn't disappear before the burial the next day. In what cases does this happen where you have to hire a bodyguard to watch over a Corpse. This is the only one I've ever seen. Like it's it's mind blowing to me. I'm like speechless. It's mind blowing. And what's so interesting is that my poor mom was probably in San Francisco, really sad that she had to go to the funeral the next day, and then this petty arguing over this body is occurring. I know. Poor mom. It's Sorry, just, mom. It's disgusting. So I went to her funeral, and it turned out that her brother was the priest at the funeral, and I didn't know that her older brother was priest. And so we kept on talking about our sister Joan during the funeral, and it was so confusing to me. And then I found out after the ceremony that it was his sister. Wait, I have a question. So when you're at the funeral 
everybody just thinks it was an overdose. Well, I or think there were know. a couple of people who knew that otherwise. My friends, you know, who knew, but they weren't telling all of us. So did you know, to go back to the funeral for a second, did you know that there were bodyguards guarding her body? No, that wasn't apparent at the funeral. No. No, it wasn't. I mean, if... Well, obviously, no one's going to take her right when everybody is there at the funeral, but overnight, they were they were guarding over her remains, and... So dramatic, Did you go to the wake he? as well? No. It was private. Because there was, um, uh, according to an uh, interview for the New York Times, uh, one of the bodyguards said, we were securing the place and hiding the body because there was a firm belief, belief that someone was going to go ahead and take the body, try to keep the body away from the second autopsy. Didn't know any of that was going on at the time. No, I had no idea. It was so amazing to think that was happening. I was at a funeral grieving my friend, and here's a bunch of people fighting over her body. It's just, oh, it's ridiculous. Unbelievable. That's amazing to think of all this drama going on around. I did not know. And I didn't know, yeah. Well, but you're, you're so numb. I mean, it kind of sounds almost like a movie. You know what I mean? You're so numb with grief that you can't even imagine this stuff is happening, and then you find out it's happening. Richard Dale Wilson and a friend of his sat across the street from the mortuary as Joan's wake was being held and stared them down. Like, what? It is unbelievable. <laughs> it is unbelievable. The men staked the place out all night and waited for people to leave so that they could steal the remains. But bodyguards kept the area on lockdown and no attempt was actually made because they had hired guards. How long do you go to jail for stealing a dead body? I don't know. Having these large bodyguards guarding the body is one thing, but the family took even more precautions. They used a decoy casket to stop any attempts that Richard Dale Wilson was going to have or may have had to steal his dead fiance's body the following day on the way to the burial. So what they did was they put this decoy casket in one limousine, went to the cemetery. In another, Joan's body was taken to the medical examiner for her long-awaited second autopsy where the family thought, now we're going to get the real answers of what happened to her. This is like straight out of a movie. And also, it's so weird that there's they're trying to like evade this guy that had nothing to do with her murder. Like, this guy's a stranger. It, no, I know, but it's just most, weird. In most movies, he would be the murderer. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, he's the murderer that got off, and they're trying to like hide the body from him, and there's this whole thing, but he wasn't involved at all, which makes it even stranger. But he's this other kind of villain. Yeah. yeah. And this is one of those cases where. He felt he was the hero in his own story. Mm-hmm. Well, meanwhile, he's a villain in somebody else's. Even before he does what we know he's going to do later on in the show. So in the meantime, Beverly Hills detectives, they actually meet with the assistant medical examiner in San Francisco who had been hired by the family to conduct the second autopsy. So the, off top, the, the officers actually quote him as concluding that Jones' injuries were not consistent with misapplied CPR. And those internal injuries, the lacerations to the kidneys, the pancreas, the liver, and the adrenal gland, they would have required a great amount of force. Jesus. So the second autopsy is saying, no, this is murder. Yeah. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. So we mentioned that Jeffrey Parker was rearrested. For violating the probation he was on for his past offenses. Let's get into some detail about what those past offenses were. As far as the first woman, he essentially met this woman at a club, brought her back to her apartment, and then tried to pressure her into doing cocaine and then got violent with her. And she had to lock herself into a bathroom. Mm-hmm. And to be saved, she dangled a piece of toilet paper with a, me- a message written on it with lipstick down to the, the street to get to get rescued. And then someone called the cops. That is insane. Insane. But, yeah. And, but that's not all. He was also found in a hotel room or I think it was a hotel room or apartment with another woman who was dead in a bathtub and she had died with very similar injuries that Joan McShane Mills had died from. And, you know, we, we heard the story about the guy and how the guy had done this to another woman and she had been locked into a, uh, uh, a bathroom and managed to slip a little piece of toilet paper out the window to be saved. And then you just say, well, you know, why, why would this guy be able to be in a position to do this a second time and actually kill somebody? He said that the incident was a misunderstanding and he said that I misread her. Okay. Douchebag. Hashtag me too, Dick. Yeah. <laughs> the hell? Seriously. Okay. So let's get back to Joan's case. So Jeffrey Parker was indicted for the April 30th beating murder of Joan McShane Mills, as well as the furnishing of drugs and cocaine possession. And he pleaded innocent to all of it. So those who attended the pretrial hearings said that Richard Dale Wilson also attended. And he became extremely emotional, particularly when he heard that Jeffrey Parker would be allowed out on bail, $150,000 bail, until his trial date approached. And I'd be pissed, too. Hell yeah. People weren't happy about it, but this is this is our justice system. This is what was ordered by a judge and seemed to be fair and fit the circumstances of these charges. And it had been four months since Joan's death, and it was a quarter to midnight on August 2nd, 1983, when Costa Mesa police were called to a suburban home in the area. So now our story is taking us to Orange County, which right. is, what, 100 miles from Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So when they arrived, they found a man lying dead on a doorstep. Not to be confused with dead as a doornail. <laughs> dead on a doorstep. The woman who lived there was hysterical, and the man who lay dead in front of her was her son. And the woman said she thought she had heard fireworks. She heard two loud pops, and that the neighborhood kids over there played with fireworks often, so we didn't, she didn't really think much of it. Right. But in fact, the pops she heard were two bullets being fired into her son. And when she opened the front door, he lay unconscious dying on the porch at her feet. The man had suffered two gunshot wounds, one to the chest and one to the head. And ballistics would soon reveal that he was shot with a large caliber handgun. The victim was none other 
than Jeffrey Parker. He'd moved into his mother's house since the arrest and was returning home that night when he was shot twice at close range. Jeffrey Parker was rushed to Fountain Valley Community Hospital where he was pronounced dead and he could never say who is the, the person was. who killed him. Yeah. So what's very fascinating, and he was supposed to go on trial for Joan's murder the very next day. Oof. Do you hear about Jeffrey Parker's murder? And I heard about Jeffrey Parker's murder. I believe that Frank Mills told me about it, Joan's ex-husband. We all knew that the guy was going to go to trial for her murder. And then we all heard that he had been killed the morning that he was going to trial on the way to the courthouse, apparently. And somebody w- went up and shot him. So we just figured out it was some kind of professional hit. It could have been anybody. It could have been the guy who's, you know, with, from the first woman who threw the toilet paper out the window to, to be saved. You know, it could have been anybody. It could have been a neighborhood watch person who said, is how many women is this guy going to kill? You know, so, but it wasn't an accident when somebody went up and shot him. And everybody was, like, a little bit relieved, actually. Okay, so Jeffrey Parker's found dead. What do we think? Who would want to kill Jeffrey Parker? Who on earth would ever want to kill Jeffrey Parker? He has no enemies at all. I think of at least one, but definitely five. Multiple people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the woman in the bathtub who was killed by him, presumably. Mm-hmm. The woman who hid in the bathroom and dangled the toilet paper out the window for help mm-hmm. and narrowly escaped with her life. He has, you know, suitcases of cocaine in his trunk. He's a cocaine dealer. And he was also rumored to be a police informant. So there are just, I mean, there are multitudes of people that would have some sort of rationale for wanting to see him gone. But it is interesting that it happened the night before he was going to stand trial for Joan's murder. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost as if someone didn't want to sit through a trial. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Almost. (laughs) Almost. (laughs) Yeah. Too much, you know, I don't have that much free time on my hands. No, they barely pay you to be on jury duty. Imagine just not even being paid and having to sit through a trial. Yeah, and hear details of your how your loved one was killed. That yeah. doesn't sound fun to me. But anyways, this whole thing, I mean, Jeffrey Parker is murdered, and I don't think that many people shed tears for him other than his family, which we, of course, have sympathy for. But this brings us to a really important theme and you know topic within this episode, which is the concept of vigilante justice and revenge slangs and how we all feel about it. Right. What do you guys think overall? You know, vigilanteism is, it seems like it's justice. And we prop up vigilantes in popular culture. Batman is considered a vigilante. Um, uh, The movie Death Wish and Charles Bronson, that's a vigilante. But it's it's not a good thing because what you're acting as is judge, jury, and executioner. And... You are not taking everything into account when you're going out and doing something like that. Uh, There's a big difference between going out for justice and going out for uh, uh, revenge, which is really what this is. Interesting you should say that. I have an article that I found from (laughs) Psychology. It's not like Billy set you up for this at all. (laughs) I found an article in Psychology Today, and a psychologist and author named Leon Seltzer refreshing last name because there isn't for me who's not trained in law or like you know linguistics or however you differentiate words 
The difference between revenge and justice to most people are... It's interchangeable. It's interchangeable, but it's not. And this guy did the best job of all the research I was doing for this episode in differentiating the two. And he has five main reasons as to why they are different. And we're going to start with one, is that revenge is predominantly emotional and justice primarily rational. Right. Can you guys see that? Yeah, we learned that in Legally Blonde, remember? (laughs) Are you one of the girls right now? <laughs> I'm just saying. He's trying that, to make a reference we all understand. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm just saying that member L's speech at the end of Legally Blonde? Honestly, not really. No. <laughs> so, okay, so that's number... What, what do we think about the fact that revenge is predominantly emotional and justice primarily rational? Absolutely. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah, because revenge is not to... It's not like you want to apply some sort of blankets like yeah well you're going direct usually to the person right yeah yes of course and then how about the next one is revenge is by nature personal justice impersonal and impartial and that's true it's like revenge it's like one person did something the other person avenges Mm -hmm. the thing and then at least with justice it's you get a jury of your peers who don't know you who are impartial they've been screened to make sure there aren't any biases right there's like a distance between the two exactly um the third revenge is an act of vindictiveness justice of vindication now i think that one's particularly interesting where it's you're you're trying to inflict pain on another person uh because you've been in pain and it's it's vindictive it's like how can i hurt them how can i Hit them where it hurts. You kill their family. Like people in revenge killings and certain, you know, narcos and the drug world, they kill people's families as acts of revenge. And that's vindictive. It's not vindication. Right. And justice, I think, when it's not corrupt, strives to be fair. That's how it's been written. But I mean, it should be. Yeah. You can't control the, the, the various independent players who are, you know, executing justice, lawyers, judges. A certain percentage of everybody is a piece of shit, so we can't control those people. But generally, if applied properly, our justice system is is pretty well thought out. Yes, and it's it's the best justice system that has been come up with. It's the best one that we've had since civilization has started. I concur. We try. Yes. So revenge is about cycles. Justice about closure. And it's true. Because revenge, it can just keep going back and forth. Yeah. Till. You know, no you end. do some like if you like take someone's eye, then they might want to take your eye, and then if you take someone's is, tooth, they'll want your tooth. They might want your tooth. Now, there is a saying and I think that sounds a little similar to that. Is there really? An eye for an eye <laughs> makes the whole world blind. Yep. I never, I never heard any of that. I don't, what? Know, what that, I don't know what that's from. You're the smart one out of all of us. I, well, I don't know where that's from. So that's very, that's a very clear revenge <laughs> about cycles justice closure, where it's like, nope, you can't be tried again. This is a fair application of the law mm-hmm. you've got a sentence it's very clear concise i feel that i feel that leon seltzer anyways <laughs> last one revenge is about retaliation justice about restoring balance mm-hmm. yes and that's the whole reason why true crime is something that a lot of people watch is that they want to see that restored balance yeah you make references about this a lot it's like bringing order back from chaos. Bringing yeah. order back from chaos. That's why people like this because that's why people like this genre is that it remember they always start off with everything was great, it's pastoral setting, everything was wonderful, then it gets bad and then eventually it gets better again. Right. And uh, people like that. People have a natural in, uh, inclination to create that order out of chaos. 
feel like everybody just wants to rationalize that chaos and make sense of it and try to find some kind of a reasoning for it. So that makes sense. Totally. And I think the big draw for people and the numbers may have changed, but a while ago, true crime was predominantly absorbed and consumed by women. And I think a lot of that is fear. Mm-hmm. We watch because we're afraid and we want to, because we're we curious. might be the victim. Yeah. Exactly. Which is why I got into true crime at the very least. I thought I was going to be serial killed. So I got into Ted Bundy, which is what I did my high school project on. And then you're afraid, you educate, and then you want everything to be okay again, Mm -hmm. which is what a cycle of, I think, each true crime show or episode or documentary is about, where it's like, that's why it's, you know, Billy can comment on this too. And we both are involved in, you know, producing shows, selling show concepts that have to do with true crime. It's very new that unsolved cases, it's a new thing that unsolved cases are being profiled because generally it's like we need an ending. Yeah. People can't deal with that. I feel like that's also a big thing with especially a lot of these podcasts that aren't covering ongoing cases because there is you don't get that even if it's not a happy ending, you don't get that conclusion and you don't feel like something's over. Yeah. And that's been my whole that's what I've been up against since I came out here since I came out to Los Angeles is that I only cover unsolved cases. So going and pitching those stories and then saying, uh, well, it's an open-ended case. Hopefully we'll try to move the ball forward. And I was never able to get anywhere. And then eventually I did pitch one and was able to solve a murder myself. And then I didn't solve it fast enough. And then they, they didn't buy the pilot. So it, uh, <laughs> that is the most <laughs> thing I've yeah. ever heard. Well, it's like, I mean, think about getting a book, starting to read a book and then it's over and not even to where the client, like it just says TBD. At yeah. The end. And you'd be like, well, what the f- is going no, on go, like, go you... solve it yourself now here 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 are all the well we didn't well, have... listen we just we did you know um uh i'll be gone in the dark just came out right mm-hmm. it so was did unmasking the... a killer <laughs> wow okay but i'll be gone in the dark i'll be gone in the dark was an actual book though <laughs> unmasking killer was an actual show yeah but this is a book we we're talking about books oh. she was just talking about i mean books. i just i didn't, wasn't Sorry. actually okay but the books. book came out <laughs> and the book was about uh, a serial killer that doesn't get caught, and it got to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Must have been a good book. People don't, uh, it, you know, we think that, and I, I've been in in interviews with certain production companies, and actually more 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 certain networks who have said, yeah, you know what, we've done market research, and our viewers really do have said that they want open ended stories, but we really know better. We know that they don't want them to open ended stories. And how you can have 24 hours of true crime programming and not have at least 30 minutes or an hour of, of something that's unsolved that you can actually move the ball forward and help people. Right. That drives me mad. But, yeah, it's starting to open up now. And, then, and you know, that's, the, that's the, one of the great things about podcasts is that we're able to do whatever the hell we want. We can, mm-hmm. we can open it up. So while we're on the topic of this revenge slaying, vigilante justice, I want to bring up a case that is from September 12th, which is this week. Yeah. Very recent. And what happened was this occurred in Aurora, Illinois, and a judge was presiding over a case of an accused pedophile, and the judge let him out on bail. And we don't know necessarily if this pedophile actually did it. He's just accused. He hasn't had his trial, whatever. And I think that's something that we all need to keep in mind. But Anyways, so the judge wakes up after granting this guy bail, $30,000, I believe, and he goes out on his front porch and he finds the slumped over, decapitated corpse of this accused pedophile on his front door step. And we want to make sure it's very clear that revenge murders, I mean, no one shed a tear for Jeffrey Parker, 
Because he'd done this three times. I mean, it's never okay to take it in it's your own hands. It's not like he deserved it, but it's, it's nobody was sad. sad about it. Right. But this is this I have I take issue with this for a couple of reasons where the judge the decisions he makes, he may have some opinions that apply to sentences and little decisions like bail, but generally he has to just follow the rules of the state. Mm-hmm. So he's not – and I get mad when people are upset with jurors too. It's like they're applying what they're told. Their emotion is out of it, and you can't punish them. And this this judge is probably ter- terrified. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, I, fi- I take issue with this. Did they find out who did it? Not yet. I'm sure they will. I hope so, so we can cover it That's cool. on a first degree episode because this is an incredible. Think about how this person achieved this. They would have had to go get the guy, abduct him, chop his head off, lug it to the judge, put it there without this? anybody seeing it. Yeah, and it, apparently, I think they've cleared immediate family. Like, I don't. I mean, this just happened this week, so yeah. we're gonna keep you guys posted. Um, but yeah, I take issue with this for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's yeah. pretty. It's it's when when you think about the people who have been killed, who have been bad guys. So Jeffrey Dahmer was murdered in prison, mm-hmm. but he had already gone through his trial. I don't believe any murder, no matter what, is bad. In my opinion, any murder, no matter what, is bad. Uh, but he had already gone through his trial, so we know that he was he was convicted. Mm-hmm. This is a little bit different, and <sighs> it is different, and. Pedophilia, so wrong for a billion reasons. The trauma, that kid could go on to perpetrate other crimes. It's very cyclical. It's it's a devastating crime to yeah. inflict on a child. Um, I don't think this is an eye for an eye, in my opinion. And nor do I even agree with the eye for an eye concept when applied to killing other people. But I can't under this is an irrash this is an irrash rational decision. It's <laughs> It's crazy. I can't, I don't know why I haven't heard of that before. Well, it's interesting, too. Why are you punishing the judge? That seems crazy to me. Well, you're pun- punishing both. You're punishing... Well, you're obviously, obviously punishing the guy he's dead. The guy he's dead and what... I mean, just to psychoanalyze whoever did this, they were thinking that justice was going to be served. Something horrible happened to this child they finally arrested somebody and justice is going to be served. And then they see this person actually being let out, even though it's on bail, even though they're going to get their trial, they see that as an affront and they took it to the most extreme possible against the two people that they felt agreed by, which is the person that did the act and then the person that quote unquote, let him out. Right. And you know, we don't even have enough time in a million podcast episodes to cover all the various opinions and moral implications and legal implications of vigilante justice. But, you know, we did also ask my mom what she thought about at least what happened to Jeffrey Parker, because not only is Joan one of her best friends at the time of the murder, but she's a lawyer. So, you know, she's got her own opinion on this sort of thing, and she had some interesting insight. What is your opinion on vigilante justice in general? You're a lawyer, so clearly at some point you believe or have faith in the judicial system. You're sworn to uphold it, etc. Vigilante justice from an ethical standpoint, what do you think, Mom? I prefer to see it with the criminals get whacked in, in jail. 
<laughs> like Jeffrey Dahmer with the uh, with the mop bucket. Right. Because I kind of like to see them in jail a little bit, suffering in jail, eating bad food and sleeping on bad sheets and, and being really uncomfortable. And then having somebody whack you. I think he got off easy, honestly, because he got killed on the way to trial. Because he could have been, gone through trial and gone to jail, eaten bad food and moldy bologna sandwiches for years, and then have somebody, you know, torture him a little bit and then kill him in jail. That probably would have been better from my point of view. So I don't necessarily, I prefer the slow burn. Damn right, Mom. <laughs> Damn right you do. Well, I, I really don't think that, you know, you should take a life. Ever. I really don't think, you know, it's it's my place to do it. I would have preferred, I'll say it again, to have him slow burn. Right. A little slow burn in jail. That's the spirit. Uh, but that's okay that he's, you know, I mean, I felt, you know, somewhat vindicated when he died because she was dead. So it was kind of an eye for an eye. But I, you know, it's, uh, but it's very unfortunate that he was able to get off the first time and then do it a second time because clearly Joan did not have to die. So I think that most people probably felt how my mom felt, kind of relieved that this guy was out of the picture, but nonetheless, murder is murder and the police were still looking for the killer. I mean, they had a murder on their hands. This guy wasn't a convicted murderer, Jeffrey Parker. He was just an accused murderer. So they were looking for leads, and of course, the first person they zeroed in on was Richard Dale Wilson. He was questioned extensively, and because, of course, he had made a ton of verbal threats in the months following Joan's murder about what he'd like to do to Jeffrey Parker, but I think that's normal. I mean, it goes back to, well, our first episode with Ryan Jenkins and how he kind of got caught saying the same thing, but then he ended up actually doing it, so that's not really a... Well, well sure, but... It's like Jeffrey Parker. I mean, if someone murdered my fiance, we don't have. But anyways, <laughs> if someone murdered someone I loved, I would be ranting. Uh, anybody, anybody in their right mind totally would be pissed off saying, exactly. I'm going to f- kill that guy. Like that is only a human reaction to have. Right. So that's really all the police had. So he had the motive to kill Jeffrey Parker, but he had an airtight alibi and after a few months, the police kind of chased down leads and talked to people, other people who I'm sure wanted to kill Jeffrey Parker, but they came up with nothing. So the case went cold, and they really didn't think that they would ever solve it. And the case was cold for about four years. And suddenly, out of the blue, there is this new interest in the case. And the Costa Mesa police, they received a tip from one of Jeffrey's family members. And it was his brother-in-law. It was a guy named Richard Hale. And he claimed that Richard Dale Wilson confessed to him that he had, in fact, killed Jeffrey Parker. And even though there was no new physical evidence, the Orange County DA decided to charge Richard Dale Wilson with the murder based just on this tip. And he was indicted for the murder and he pled not guilty. If you hire someone to commit a murder for hire, you really have to prove that because, I mean, a lot of that can be circumstantial. So if you don't have the guy who pulled the trigger, how are you ever going to say that this man over here hired the guy to pull the trigger? It's impossible. You need the trigger man. So, I mean, the whole idea that they brought, that they indicted him in the first place seemed remarkable to me. That must have been political. Because if they didn't have the murder weapon and they didn't have the murderer, they're going to go on hearsay and say, oh, yeah, this guy, Richard Dale Wilson, 
he must have killed the guy. He must have hired someone because he said he was really upset about his fiance being killed. We were all upset. Everybody could have been indicted. We all wanted to kill the guy. You know, I mean, we probably said it. You know, this guy doesn't deserve to live, especially when you find out that he's done it to somebody else. I don't see how they could ever have assumed that he could or, or have proven him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt if they didn't have the weapon or the hitman. All they had was a dead murderer. So two of Richard Dale Wilson's family members were testifying for the prosecution, his brother and his brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. Why would they turn on him and turn him in if it's true, if he did do it? Why would they? It's like their brother, their family member's fiance was brutally murdered. Why would they come forward and try to implicate him when this kind of, it's been four years. It just seems very odd. It does seem odd. Like, yeah, what was the reasoning? Why the timing? Like, let it go. Kind of, this revenge slang seemed kind of okay for everyone. (laughs) Yeah. It's family dynamics. Who knows? I know. Somebody might have known, you know, just one slight at a Hollywood, at a uh, Hollywood, at a holiday party. And then all of a sudden you're going to the police and saying, you know what? My brother and my brother-in-law killed somebody. Yeah. You could have pissed him off for some unknown dumb reason. Both of them? A brother and I'm turning on you. You never know. You know, families are weird. You don't know. Don't I know. (laughs) Hi, mom. What do you think about the fact that the two witnesses for the prosecution were his brother-in-law and his brother? And how compelling is that generally in a situation like that as a lawyer? You know, that's very interesting to me why they would feel obligated to turn him in if if he did do it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or because... even if he, yeah, if, if he didn't do it, it's odd. And if he did do it, it's odd. And then also such such a long time after, too. Maybe they all felt guilty. Maybe they all felt that there was something going, you know, something that they were responsible for. Maybe they felt that they couldn't sleep at night because they knew something had happened and they felt responsible for this murderer's death. So... The trial date approached and the trial commenced and the prosecution didn't have that strong of a case. They had two family members of Richard Dale Wilson's testifying against him, but they were both drunks and alcoholics and Richard Dale Wilson had an airtight alibi. They didn't have a trigger man. They didn't have any evidence. And, uh, you know, I, I really can't fathom why they decided to move forward with this. Both sides had their closing arguments and both sides rested. And the jury deliberated for two days, which is a pretty long deliberation. Mm -hmm. So nobody really knew what was going to happen. But when the jury foreperson came forward and announced the verdict, not guilty. Damn. Not guilty. There wasn't enough. I mean, you wouldn't. all, all All you got is a... A family member saying that he confessed to doing it. And it's not enough members Or two family members. Four years later. It doesn't make any sense. you know, what's interesting is some of the things that um, the prosecution said when they approached other witnesses, everybody was afraid of Richard Dale Wilson. Mm -hmm. Everyone said how connected he was. He certainly had the means and the motive to do this. I mean, it all made sense. There's just no evidence. He probably did. Yeah, I think he did. He probably did. But they just didn't have the evidence. This is a perfectly executed... Revenge slaying. 
accused revenge slang. Accused, let, let's just say that. It's an accused revenge slang. We have nothing <laughs> to prove that this guy did anything. Perfectly executed <laughs> accused revenge slang. But I remember, um, you know, hearing that he had been charged. And then I remember hearing that he, that he was acquitted. What do you think about the acquittal? I mean, I know he didn't do it himself, holding the gun, if that's what you're asking. And, you know, it, 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 who's to say that he actually, you know, paid someone to do it? It's possible that somebody volunteered to do it for him. You know, he had a lot of friends. So I, mean, I could say I could see that it would be really hard to pin it on him because he could have just been out there venting about it and someone could have done it for him which would have been the best way to do it because then there doesn't have to be a paper trail leading back to him. So it would make sense that he would be acquitted because if he did do it, then he probably did a very good job of covering up his tracks or somebody else did it for him. So, you know, and I've gotten this a lot with the things that I do with using social media and helping police departments out and trying to catch killers. And people, some people have tagged that as vigilantism and I'm very, very careful and very careful for people that want to do the same thing that I'm doing to to tell them that this is that's not what you do. This is not vigilantism. You see it a lot on the internet with doxing people. It sounds like it's not the same thing. You're going from murdering somebody to just doxing somebody or trying to drive a a uh, internet mob against someone. But it's it's in the same boat as being a vigilante, and it's not a good thing, you know. And what Batman says is, if you kill a killer, the number of killers in the room remains the same. That's a very powerful Ooh. Batman quote. And that's why Batman doesn't apparently kill everyone or kill anyone. Meanwhile, when you watch the movies, and you know those people are dead. I mean, the, the, yeah, the, the, you get thrown off a building? The blunt force trauma that those people are getting, it's clear that they're dying. But he says, I don't kill people. But you know what? There are right. probably a lot of them dead. But it sounds good. Uh, but I do I do quote. agree with it, though. It is a good quote. Well, and it's possible that maybe someone else did pull the trigger and killed Jeffrey Parker. And maybe the DA and the Costa Mesa Police Department did get it wrong. Maybe they didn't have the right guy. Maybe he didn't do it. But maybe he just got away with it. Mm-hmm. And maybe under certain circumstances, that's kind of okay. <laughs> We're obviously not encouraging these kinds of revenge slangs, but... If he did do it, justice doesn't always prevail, and maybe that's all right. I don't think it's all right. In certain cases. <laughs> I don't I don't I, think it's all it's right. It's not ideal, but are you going to lose are you going to lose sleep over Jeffrey Parker's I'm not necessarily going to lose sleep over it, but it's not all right. I mean, the minute we start saying that that's all right, it's the just minute keep going and it, keep it, going and keep going. It's a slippery slope, and there has to be accountability in anybody that you know, it's the same reason why I'm, a, I'm also against the death penalty, too. And that's somebody that 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 is a killing that has gone through the entire judicial process. You know, I'm also against the death penalty. It's it's takes a lot to take somebody's life and to be able to do that without any due process, even if you are completely sure that this guy did it. Um, I don't agree with it. I agree. Um, but what I to clarify my previous thought was that he went through the judicial process. And they could not find the evidence after four years to even plant a seed, you know, of as far as this person did it. He, he wasn't convicted. So in my opinion, justice was served. And if he did do it, we'll then get more evidence. Until then, he's entitled to be free. And that's the thing. When I see justice didn't prevail, it's like if he did do it, it didn't. But 
I mean, get the evidence. Yeah, no, what, what you're saying is justice didn't prevail in him getting uh, getting uh, convicted of the crime. I'm right. talking about the original crime itself and then the justice before that of the guy um, getting off potentially with the murder of the woman. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about the vigil. I'm talking about the revenge lane. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying, too. Right. Of course. It's listen. No one should take shit into their own hands. People should let the judicial system reliable or not. It's kind of, you know, it's a social construct where we have to deal with it's whether the, we like it or not. It's the best thing that we have come up with in the thousands of years of civilization. Twelve people uh, sitting in a room with really no experience. Think about that. It's no experience. If you have a, too much experience, you're getting thrown off that jury, which sucks. But it's true. Twelve people with no experience being told all of the, the, the two arguments, and then you're supposed to decide who's guilty, who's innocent. And that's the best we've come up with so far. Mm-hmm. It's not terrible. So either way, though, forget Jeffrey Parker's murderer. Jones' murderer was dead. So I know I'm sure some people felt a certain amount of relief at that. And I know my mom certainly did. Well, I was kind of normal compared to Joan, you know what I mean? She was larger than life. So when somebody who's larger than life burns out early, you go, oh, wow. You know, she was she filled the room all the time. So maybe it was meant to be, you know what I mean? So sad that it had to be so brutal. And then you just wonder what what would she have been like as an adult? You know, here I am an adult and she's like Marilyn Monroe etched in everybody's memory. Well, you know, this whole thing about uh, thinking about her has brought her to life in my, for me in some way, just to think about her for the past couple of days. You know, she's going to stay 30 forever in your mind. And you just have to recognize that people are an essence and that they stay alive in your, you know, their spirits stay alive in your heart, I guess. And uh, they live on. So it would have been interesting to see how she would have been as a grown-up, but maybe she wasn't intended to be a grown-up. All right, well, we want to give a big thanks for Barbara Matthews for being on the podcast. Thanks, Alexis, for getting her. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Mom. We also want to give Jack Ravina a shout-out for making all of our theme music because it's pretty amazing and we love him. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Jack. Hi, Jack. If you guys are one degree away from a murder or crime, please write us. We want to tell your story. Email us at hello at thefirstdegreepodcast.com or go to our website, thefirstdegreepodcast.com, and there is a submissions form that you can fill out. Um, These stories are very important to us. Like this one was somewhat very unknown. Very unknown. And it really needed to be told, and we love to be the voices to do that. Um, also follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. And remember to keep your friends close, but not that close. Sources for this episode include the San Francisco Chronicle, the LA Times article by Mark Landsbaum and Steve Emmons. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.